The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went towards the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? For whom are you looking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabunai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. So, it is Easter. Growing up, um, for me, Easter was um, sun, Easter Sunday. Just it was one big day where we celebrated the re resurrection of Jesus. Um, now, as many of you may know, in the Episcopal Church, Easter is not just one day. It's an entire season. It is 50 days of celebration leading up to Pentecost Sunday, which comes at the end of May. And one of the things that I've grown to really appreciate about the rhythm of the church calendar is that no matter what is happening in my life, no matter what is happening in our world, the calendar helps orient me towards the story of God as the primary narrative of our world and how everything that's happening in my life, the lives of my loved ones, the life of our city and of our world, everything that happens, happens in light of that greater story with a capital S. 
So in the rush and hurry of my life, the season of Advent, it forces me to slow down and to wait for the coming of Jesus. Um, Lent, whether I feel like repenting or not, it rolls around and it asks me that question, Christine, how have you gotten away from the Lord and how can you return to him with all of your heart? And now it's Easter. So this past week, um, the U.S. reached a very grim milestone where we surpassed Italy in the total number of confirmed deaths from the coronavirus. As of last night, it was more than 20,500 people. And here in our city in New York alone, 8,600 total deaths. And that number is just going to continue to rise. And it's not um, death only. There are 16 million people who are out of work right now. There are people who are putting their lives on the line every single day who never dreamed that they would be in this position. Life has been completely upended and no one knows what's gonna happen. And that brings about a particular kind of anxiety and dread to, into our psyches about the future. And I think we've all been doing the best that we can, but it feels dissonant to suddenly shout, Alleluia, Christ is risen. Easter is about resurrection and joy and life and hope. But how do you press into Easter's realities when you are surrounded by death and sorrow and fear? That's why this morning I want to talk to us about practicing resurrection. So I'm stealing this phrase from the book title um, written by Eugene Peterson, who himself stole that phrase from the last line of Wendell Berry's poem, Manifesto, The Mad Farmer's Liberation Front. And just as a side note, that poem is very much worth reading um, during this season. And so Peterson writes, and it's a little bit of a long quote, so um, bear with me here. He writes, the church is an appointed gathering of named people, that's us, you and me, in particular places, like New York City, who practice a life of resurrection in a world in which death gets the biggest headlines. Death of nations, death of civilization, death of marriage, death of careers, obituaries without end, death by war, murder, accident, starvation, and now we can add the coronavirus. Death by electric chair, lethal injection, and hanging. And then he says this, the practice of resurrection is an intentional, deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life. Life out of death, life that trumps death, life that is the last word, Jesus life. It is not an attack on the world of death. It is a nonviolent embrace of life in the country of death. It is an open invitation to live eternity in time. So in this moment in time, April 5th, the year 2020, Easter Sunday, what might it look like to practice resurrection in a world submerged in death? 
And I want to introduce this idea today, and we're going to be unpacking this throughout the Easter season together. And we get some clues in Jesus's first post-resurrection encounter with Mary Magdalene. And I want to focus this morning in one unlikely place, and that's weeping. So now in normal years during Holy Week, to talk about weeping on Easter Sunday would be a little bit like kind of counterintuitive. That's that's because we weep on Good Friday, you know, like that's the day that we weep and we cry, but not on Easter Sunday. You know, that's the day that we celebrate and have joy. And yet here we have this poignant story of Mary who is weeping and it's post-resurrection. So Jesus is alive, but she doesn't know it yet. It's Easter Sunday, but she's still living in Good Friday. Now we can assume that once she realizes that he's alive, that she stops weeping from grief and maybe starts weeping with joy. And we could say that she no longer grieves because now she knows that he's alive. But that begs the question, once you know that Jesus is alive, does that mean that there's no more weeping? You know, does the fact that Jesus is risen mean that there's no more sorrow and death? Of course not. We know that's not true. The coronavirus has been dominating, dominating our headlines, but you know what? There is always weeping. Right now, there are people fighting for their lives as they battle cancer. There are people fighting for their lives as they battle depression and thoughts of suicide. There are things happening in our world right now that are so heart-wrenching that it would make you weep from grief and anger and sorrow that will never make the headlines. And that is always true every Easter Sunday, every Good Friday, every single day of every year. So there's a pastor named uh, John Ortberg, and he talks about how the gospel is a three-day story. The Bible is full of three-day stories. So you might remember the story of Jonah, who was in the belly of the whale for three days. Queen Esther, she called the Jews to fast for three days before she went into the king. And there's this general pattern of three days where day one is trouble, day three is deliverance, and day two is often just silence. The gospel is a three-day story, not a one-day story. And what that means is that Easter Sunday does not cancel out the trouble of Good Friday, nor the silence of Saturday. But rather, it takes them up into itself and anchors them in a hope by saying that death is not the end. It does not have the final word. Now, some of us live in Good Friday, where we get swallowed up in death and despair and fear and anger and grief, as if Jesus never rose. And other, others of us live and think, or think we should live, as if it's just Easter Sunday and that Good Friday, it's, it's over and done with. And we sweep all of that under the rug and we're sunny and upbeat and positive all the time. Neither of those are the gospel. The gospel is the three-day story that encompasses the full range of human experience from my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
to the silence that often comes after that. And I have seen the Lord. And I can't believe my eyes. And Jesus said that in this world, you will have trouble. He didn't say you might have trouble. He said you will have trouble. But he says, take heart for I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. And what this crisis has done for us is that it's shattered the illusion that we can avoid trouble or that we can buy our way out of trouble or that we can control how much trouble comes into our lives. But trouble and resurrection hope are not mutually exclusive. And that's what Jesus shows us over these three remarkable days that changed our world forever. The practice of resurrection is an intentional, deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life, life out of death, life that triumphs death, life that is the last word, the Jesus life. And practicing resurrection means weeping in this life because there is so much to weep about. But we do not weep as those who have no hope as the Apostle Paul writes, because Jesus has overcome the world. And the love of God, the power of God, and the life of God is stronger than death itself. And if Christ descended into death and into darkness and into hell, where can you not find him? Many of you um, already know or have heard the story of my father, and how he was separated from his family during the Korean War when, we, when he was only 12 years old. And so he's the fifth of nine children. And during the war, like many Korean families, um, they decided to divide up. And his parents planned to send his four older siblings to the South to stay with relatives. And my grandfather um, thought that my dad was too young to go with them. And so he had planned to keep him with them and their younger siblings. And so my dad tells a story of how um, he came into his house one day after playing and he saw his older siblings there um, looking like they were ready to leave. And they were there with his mother. And at the very last minute, his mother pushed him towards them and said, take him with you. Now I don't know what was going through my grandmother's mind at that time, but you can imagine as a mother, as a parent, how heart-wrenching that would be to let your young child go away from you, away from your ability to protect them, and that all you have is a prayer to God that he would hold your child in safety until they return to you. Well, that was the last time that he saw his mother, because while he was in the South, the U.S. and Russia decided to draw a border between North and South, where it still stands today, separating children from their parents, husbands from wives, brothers from sisters. And so my father grew up like an orphan on the streets of South Korea. And he talks about how he wept many, many tears as a young child. And how sometimes he would be sleep, asleep uh, or sleeping on the mountain, you know, hungry, homeless, looking out at the lights over the city and longing for his own home, for his mother. 
So in a, in a story that's um, way too long to get in right now, you know, fast forward 35 years. You know, our family is living in Maryland. I'm, you know, a, a young teenager. And my father is my age, um, 47 years old. And all of these years, he had no idea what had happened to his family, you know, whether they were dead or alive. And then out of nowhere, he receives a letter informing him that his mother and his younger siblings are still alive, that his father had died during the war, and that there was a way that he could go and see them. After 35 years, you know, remember the last time that his mother saw him, he was only 12 years old. So I'm gonna ask um, Mitch to show you a photo of their reunion. So I love this photo. Um, this photo is a photo of a three-day story. It's a photo um, of trouble, of 35 years of silence and then joy. You're just pure, unadulterated joy that is made all the more sweet because of the heartache and the sorrow that they endured. This morning, I want to ask you, you know, where are you in this three-day story? You know, where are you? You know, maybe it's Good Friday. Maybe it's the silence of Saturday. Maybe it's Easter Sunday. Well, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble but take heart for I have overcome the world. These are times of trouble, my brothers and sisters, but take heart. Um, this is not the end. Death is not the end. We live in this three-day story. And so, alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia.